The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and special guest for the hour, Mike Larson. Uh, Mike, I, I appreciate you joining here. I think last time I, I saw you was back in uh, in Miami. It was somewhere in Florida. It was for some conference. <laughs> yeah, I think Orlando. Money Orlando, show, that's, right, that's right. It's, 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 stuff feels like it was forever ago, but it was only a few months ago. So, so listen, Mike, for those who are not <laughs> familiar with who you are and your background, just set the stage as far as uh, what you do and how you got involved in markets. Sure, Michael. Thanks for having me today. Um, my name, again, is Mike Larson. I'm the editor of the Safe Money Report that's been published by the Weiss Ratings Organization in some form or another since all the way back in the 1970s. Uh, also handle a couple other products that we have, including an option selling service. Um, and I've just been a, a student and follower of the markets for many, many years. Um, started in the late 1990s, working at Bloomberg News, then Bankrate.com, and then Weiss in the early 2000s. So uh, I'm out here in Las Vegas speaking to some investors like you at the Money Show conference right now, and it's been a blast. So uh, I wish I could say the same about the, the character of the market, but in any event, i um, happy to be here and uh, glad you were able to get me on. Okay, so um, safe, as you know, is kind of a loaded term in in the investment industry, right? And just like I would argue risk-off is maybe a loaded term, um, in my world, risk-off is really that convexity that occurs when treasuries really outperform equities during those high volatility periods. So in the world that I live in from a risk on risk off perspective, I haven't done well at all in this period because risk off has not acted risk off. And I say it's a loaded term because some people think, well, that means go into cash, just like some people would say that safe implies uh, you won't lose money. But as we've seen, right, uh, in the case of some of these stable coins, in the case of traditional relationships, uh, everything has some degree of risk. There's no way around it. Talk through your approach with the Safe Money Report. What is it that you focus on, and how do you think about risk, especially in this kind of environment? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we're used to this sort of 60-40 environment where, hey, if you lose money on your equities, at least you're making money on your treasuries, so you've got that built-in hedge. Whereas for the last several months, I mean, you know, it's, it's no surprise to people listening to this that it's been a disaster for both equities and treasuries. Um, you know, it's it's been a hard market to find safe havens. Even things like like gold and, and silver have, have been lagging in recent weeks, uh, despite the market volatility and turmoil we've seen in the S&P and particularly in the tech sector. So, yeah, it's a difficult environment. Um, what, when I talk about safety, though, I look at safety from a relative perspective. I mean, if you look at the kinds of uh, market sectors in, in the last few months or last several months, really, 
that have been outperforming versus those that have been underperforming, it's a completely different environment in 2022 than it was in the, you know coming out of the COVID worst of the COVID pandemic, and then also last year as well. Um, you know, back then it was nobody could get enough tech, nobody could get enough IPOs and SPACs and this, that, and the other, uh, and they didn't want anything to do with utilities and uh, you know consumer staples and all their other traditionally defensive or late cycle sectors. Whereas now it's completely different. I mean, you know, you look at the, the innovation type names, I use that term with quotes around it, uh, those have been pure portfolio poison. I mean, you've lost gobs and gobs of points if you're overinvested in that stuff. And you've seen safety, um, you know, traditional late cycle, safe haven type sectors. Again, utilities, consumer staples and, and, and all of that have been outperforming. Um, you know, on an absolute basis, really only energy has been the star. Um, but, you know, making or, or, or keeping your your Making a little bit or losing only a little bit looks nice when you've got something like the Qs down 20 plus percent year to date. Year to date. So I like to look at safety from, again, from a relative perspective. Um, what you want to be owning now, what you want to be investing now in now and for the rest of this year and, and in the next year, in my opinion, is completely different from what you wanted to own a year or two ago. And you absolutely have to recognize that, that change is underway. and You absolutely have to adapt as an investor. Okay, let, let's talk about that relative sector movement because this has been one of the frustrations from an intermarket analysis perspective this year in that usually when you see utilities outperforming the market, consumer staples outperforming the market, healthcare outperforming the market, the dividend plays, you'll also see treasuries acting risk off, meaning you end up seeing yields drop. You had this really amazing divergence in the strength of defensive sectors versus the weakness of the bond market. And I, I know for a fact that that's historically abnormal because I've done all kinds of quant work on that. Um, this is maybe the million dollar question, but at what point do you think some of these relationships of sector relative movement and asset class behavior, at what point do they start to resync? Meaning that you see, if you see our performance in defensive sectors, it means defensive posturing outside of equities. Sure. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, you think utilities, who wants to own that uh, sector in a rising rate environment? But from again, from a relative perspective, utilities versus the S&P, it's been lights out in terms of performance. Um, I think you are seeing some of that reconnection or some of that that downward uh downward uh, push in things like real estate, for example. I mean, REITs tend to be a, a decent late cycle play. But if you look at something like the XLRE, the real estate sector ETF, uh, it's not doing well at all this year. Um, whereas, again, that's sort of different from the XLP and the XLU being the staples and utilities. I tend to think you still you want to be still in things that that give you recession resistance. Um, give you resilience in a tough economy. Because, I mean, you look at, at the economic outlook, and, and I think it's hard to say to be very positive uh, about the, the rest of this year and next year in terms of growth when you've got rising interest rates, when you've got uh, the housing market that's, that's clearly leaking air now and all of that. So I think given that situation, you can still, even in a rising rate environment, own things like utilities, own things like consumer staples. Because I think if, if you sort of weigh the forces working for and against them, uh, that that recession resistance, that downturn resistance uh, of those sectors is probably going to outweigh the pressure you get from rising rates. So again, I mean, it's a tough market overall. It's a bad market overall. Let's not sugarcoat things. 
But if you're going to be invested in something, if you have to have stock exposure, uh, again, you still want that defensive stuff. You want the things that are in your pantry and your refrigerator and under your sink and so on. Um, because I think that those those are the kinds of stocks that are still going to give you some value from dividends, are still going to give you that recession resistance uh, and probably are going to I mean, you know, they're already outperforming. And I don't expect that to change for the rest of the year. And again, probably heading into next year as well. The term um, late cycle is an interesting one because you're right. I mean, the areas which you would expect to to lead when you look within the equity markets, you know, during a late cycle phase are are leading. But you have late cycle movement in an early interest rate uh, hiking cycle. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, so talk through sort of the the asynchronous disconnect between the timing of this movement and the timing of the Fed. I, I heard somebody say yesterday on Space, I forget the exact way the frame said the Fed is so uh, late to the game that they're almost early. That's that's a, that's an interesting way of putting it, and I wouldn't you know I wouldn't argue with it. I mean, if you look at the interest rate market, uh, obviously the Fed didn't start moving in, until March of this year, but the, the yield curve, if you look at twos tens, uh, basically peaked out last March and started flattening and then briefly inverting uh, for months and months and months, even as the Fed hadn't hadn't uh, risen or increased interest rates at all. And and yes, that's that's odd given historical patterns, typically, especially at the short end of the yield curve, um, you know, you're going to see movement once the Fed gets very close to raising. And in this case, uh, the curve sort of ran off on its own because I think the bond market realized, look, the Fed is, is way behind what's happening in the real economy, especially on the inflation front. Um, and, you know, there was even a story, I think, earlier this week in the Wall Street Journal where the Fed was kind of doing some self-reflection and saying, gee, maybe we should have started moving in September or October or whatever of last year. Uh, and that's absolutely true. I mean, again, this economy was coming out of the worst of the pandemic. Inflation was ramping up uh, last year and the Fed should have been moving. Uh, the bond market moved for it. And, and, and that's what you saw in things like two year note yields and so on. Um, and now the Fed is just pl- trying to rapidly play catch up. Uh, but I kind of. It's, it's, you know, that old quote about, uh, you know, skate to where the hockey puck is going. I think in this case, a good metaphor is that, you know, the Fed was sitting there watching somebody slash at the hockey puck. It flew by. It's going 80 miles per hour towards the goal. And now they're thinking, gee, maybe we should play catch up and do something about that. Um, that's kind of where the Fed is at this point. And that's why I think they're talking about front loading hikes. And that's why I think the, the market is worried about recession risk, because, again, if, if the Fed had been gradual about this and started unwinding earlier, uh, you know, you'd have more reason for, for optimism that maybe they could engineer a soft landing. But now you're going to have a Fed that that's dramatically hiking into an environment where some of the economic news is getting a little squishy, things like, you know, the ISMs and so on. So uh, I think it's a, it's a very tough environment. There is real economic risk coming down the pike. And that's what the market's sniffing out. I mean, that's why it's been such a lousy start to the year for many, uh, many asset classes. It's also been I think one of the you can argue one of the worst bear markets you can possibly imagine. Everyone's looking at the S and P, you know, in terms of its year to date returns being you know more in the kind of correction environment. But a lot of things, as as you know, underneath the surface have been decimated in nominal terms. Meaning that when you factor in you know how something like an arc has performed after inflation, it's even worse. You look at the way the bond market has performed after inflation from total return perspective. This is you know one of the most devastating periods for wealth you can you can trace in history right and 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 in fairness right not that i'm trying to defend the fed you can make the argument that listen they can't predict the future better than anybody else 
and they never they've never seen anything like this before. And that's that's not an invalid argument, but I do believe that you can prevent a lot of problems with fiat if you're simply rules based from a central banking perspective instead of yeah you know, sort of the the uh, judgment based approach that the Fed takes, which any degree of judgment always has a degree of emotion, which has a degree of error. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, if, behind the scenes, uh, you know, I, I, I came out of college in, in 1998, right into the dot-com boom, bubble, whatever. Uh, it was a great environment to, to invest and work and, and so on uh, until it wasn't, right? Um, but when we go back and we look at, at the dot-com bust, everybody sort of measures the start of the bear market in March of 2000, because that's when, when the you know, big tech and, and the S&P and so on began to roll over. But if you look, I mean, again, I experienced it firsthand. If you looked at what happened as far back as the, the, the kind of summer of 1999, a lot of that era's garbage stocks, I call them, the, the, the riskiest, no profit, whatever, terrible IPO type companies that came public uh, at the, the tail end of the dot-com bubble, um, they started falling apart again in summer of 1999. There was a, bear, a sort of stealth bear market already underway, even though big tech and the rest of the market didn't realize it until March 2000. You have seen a very similar pattern in the last, you know, nine to 12 months. I mean, if you look at, again, you mentioned ARK, and that's an obvious example, but even many of the, the, the holdings in that fund and those kinds of, of innovation names, whatever you want to call it, this era's dot-com type stocks, those all topped out in early 2021 and, and summer of 2021. Um, so, you know, that was rolling over a long time ago. It just, you know, took a while for the Facebooks and the Netflixes and the Amazons and so on to realize that there was trouble. It, it you know, the, the selling infected the market from within and now it's just spreading. So, yes, it absolutely, uh, you know, for, for some of these things that people are overweighted in uh, is absolutely been a disaster. And just now it is spilling over. Now it is something that you see in in, the, in big tech, um, just like you had back in 2000. And it, it makes it a tricky environment. It makes it a, a dangerous environment to be investing. And, and like I said, it's an environment where if you're if you're trying to invest in, in, in 2022 the way you did in 2020 or 2021, uh, you're just it's the wrong strategy. It's the wrong kind of names. Uh, it's the wrong sectors. It's it's the wrong approach to this market because market conditions absolutely have changed and you definitely need to adapt as an investor. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Okay, so let's focus on that word adapting here because in this environment, you can argue the only two things that have worked in quotes are either going fully cash with hindsight or going fully short with yeah. hindsight, right? Now, I've done a lot of back tests and I'm sure you've seen a lot of data on this too. Yes, those two approaches would have worked this year. But if you were to do any kind of a strategy test where cash is your risk off asset mm-hmm. over multiple decades, you'd find it doesn't work. If you yeah. do any kind of a back test using shorting, you'd also find, for the most part, it really doesn't work versus 
defensive sectors versus treasuries. Why? Because you will always have these false signals playing defense. And the problem is that if you're in a false signal playing defense with cash or in a false signal playing defense with shorting, well, now you're missing on compounding on the upside and, you know, with cash, right? And obviously you're getting whipsawed like hell directionally with with shorting. Yeah. How do you think about those two uh, ways of looking at markets going forward or ways for investors to play markets going forward? Because, again, it, it, you know, I, I always go back to my default that you never want to change a strategy based on an anomaly. And I do believe this is an anomaly. But the anomaly could also last for some time. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, this, especially when you factor in the, you know, the inflation issue. I mean, eight point five, eight point three, whatever the numbers are. You know, most recently, um, yeah, cash is is losing you eight percent, give or take, uh, on an annual basis. So you think, great, I'm 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 hedged against the stock market. I'm not losing money in that, but I'm you know I'm losing my purchasing power as it goes along. Uh, and, and we talked about it earlier, you know, treasuries, great hedge, except they're not in this environment. So you've got that uh, situation, even even a thing like gold, you know, it, it's outperforming the stock market. I mean, it's certainly outperforming dramatically uh, real gold versus digital gold, so to speak. Um, so I guess you could say it's an effective hedge, but it hasn't been great. You're not making money. Um, so it, it is a tricky environment. But I do think, like you said, you do kind of have to to stick to what's worked historically uh, some of these defensive sectors, because it's, again, in this tricky environment, uh, that's probably your best play. Um, you know, you can tactically short, you can tactically play downside moves. Uh, if you're nimble, if that's, you know, if that's what you're what you're into, and that's something that, you, that you're able to, to keep a close eye on the market and trade in, in and out uh, and, and play the downside, you can definitely do that. Um, certainly with inverse ETFs and so on these days, it's a lot easier to to make money from a down market uh, without taking on the risk of short selling without, you know, derivatives and so on. So that option is there. But yes, uh, you know, getting whipsawed, getting, um, you know, getting stuck in a short squeeze type environment is definitely a risk. I mean, if you look back at the, the you know, a list of the top 10 or 15 NASDAQ rallies uh, on a percentage basis, where most of them were in the, the bear market from 2000 to 2002. Uh, I remember back in the beginning of 2000, I can't remember if it was January 2nd, 3rd, something like that of 2000, uh, or excuse me, 2001, the Fed came out and, and said, you know, Greenspan back then said something like, okay, we're probably going to cut rates or we're going to you know, reverse the hikes or whatever his exact words were. And the NASDAQ, I think that day was up 11 or 12%. But on the year, it was a disaster. So you get those big rallies in your face if you're short, uh, and it definitely, you know, is a, a dangerous kind of thing uh, if you're not tactical about it, if you're not uh, looking for, you know, very attuned to the risk of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, again, from a long, if you're a longer term investor, uh, your best bet is to stick with those sort of safer sectors um, if it's if, if, you know, that's what you're looking for. And that's your strategy. So I'm really glad you um, you brought up the the inverse ETFs, right, because I think this is kind of an interesting discussion too because a lot of people are flocking to those types of funds and they're flocking to them not only because they believe it's like shorting but also just because the chart is going up and everybody's looking for a chart that's going up yeah the the, the problem is and i don't know how much work you've, you've done on this but the problem is that i don't know if people really understand the path dependency that happens with some of these inverse funds and a good example of that is in 2008 there was a time when the triple levered financials long ETF, FAS, 
in 2008 and the triple levered short financials ETF, FAZ. One's long, one's short, 3x yep. on both. There was a point in 2008 where they were both down for the year 70%. <laughs> right? One's long, one's short. Yep. Talk about, again, if you've done any studies on that, what's the risk of some of these inverse funds in terms of how people use them? Because if there's one thing that you can argue is more unpredictable than the long term, it's the way that the short term plays out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way the funds are structured, the way they they try and meet their goals. I mean, even if you look in their own disclosure statements and so on, in their own um, you know their own documents, you see that they say our goal is to meet this this standard of one, two, three percent inverse on a daily basis. Daily. I mean, the issue becomes uh, with these funds, the longer term your investment horizon is and the more volatile the underlying asset or sector is, uh, the worse the tracking gets over time just because of the, of the uh, types of derivatives and so on that they use. So again, it's from a short term perspective, if you are, are in something like FAZ uh, and the financial sector falls apart, great, you've made money um, on, a, on a day or, or weekly basis or what have you. Um, but if you start to stick in those kinds of funds for a month, a two month or six month period, that's when you get into real trouble because the tracking just doesn't work. Uh, the, the, the sort of underlying instruments work against you um, that they have that they have to use. So, you know, do I hate them as an investment? No, if, as long as you use them for the purpose that they actually, um, you know, they actually provide, use them for the, you know, use them in the right way as opposed to use them for long-term investments. Um, if, you know, you can use inverse ETFs that are less leveraged, a, a one times inverse ETF, for example, and have a longer term holding period and do okay in a bear market. Um, because again, the, the less volatile the underlying instrument, the less leverage is used, the better the tracking is over the longer term. But if you're in something like FAS, FAZ, you know, or, or any of the, the triple short tech sector ETFs and so on, I mean, that's got to be a daily or at most a week or two kind of trade. Um, because if you, you get one of these rip your face off type rallies, um, you know, on some, let, let's say we get a lower inflation print, or let's say the Fed does what it did in 2001 and, and starts backtracking and what have you. Um, you know, if you're short at that time in a triple leverage ETF, you're going to be in major trouble. I'm curious if from your experience, Mike, um, people have become more uh, addicted to adrenaline when it comes to markets, right? And, and I say that because there's a lot of studies that show that low volatility stocks tend to outperform over time. Lower beta equities tend to be a better investment. Dividends are the way to go. Um, yeah. And, and and that's partially related, obviously, to to time horizon. But have you have you observed that that people have increasingly become more momentum junkies that view the market like a like a casino than sort of a real way of generating wealth? I, I, I want you to riff on that because I think that there's something that's underneath the surface which is very bizarre in the way that people think about equities. It's a great question, seeing as I'm sitting here in, in a casino hotel at the moment. In Vegas, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, no, I absolutely think, I mean, the memification, the momentum type trades that, you know, you, you had people home from COVID, working from home if they were lucky or unfortunately unemployed, but getting big government checks. 
Um, you know, you had a, a lot of money that was just looking for something to do, for lack of a better term. Uh, and absolutely, I mean, you look at things like options trading volume uh, during the pandemic. I mean, it, it, it was enormous off off the charts, the YOLO trading and, and far out of the money calls just for the heck of it. I mean, that kind of stuff was very real. I mean, it was definitely a factor. And I think, you know, and I think that's part of the, um, that's part of why things are so painful right now. Because if you got swept up in that, um, it was fine for a while. But if you stuck around in that kind of stuff, that kind of junk, um, you're absolutely getting crushed. I mean, you know, you look at an AMC peaked out around $70. It's about 11 now. We talked about ARK earlier, you know, ARKK, their fund, you know, topped out at what, 160, almost $165. Now it's going for 39 and change. Um, and just go down the list there. I mean, there, there are stocks that were sort of swept up in this momentum trade um, that was fun while it lasted, but they're down 60, 70, 80% from their highs. Uh, and again, it's very dot com like, you know, you saw it back then. I mean, you know, back then it was Daytech accounts and E-Trade and things like that. The E-Trade uh, was that commercial where the E-Trade secretary goes and gets in her Ferrari uh, on the commercial and they're showing, you know, they're showing, oh, look how much money you can make, you know, as a dot-com investor. And now it's different names. It's different, you know, it's different stocks, it's different companies, but it's the same underlying thing that happened, uh, you know, just over two decades ago. So my goal and what I've been trying to do on Twitter at events like this and in, in the you know the, the services that, I, that I'm responsible for is trying to sort of you know grab people by the shoulder, shake them a little bit and say, look, this is is not how to invest in this market. You know it worked for a while. It's not working. It's going to lose you a lot of money. Uh, you need to you know again recognize and adapt as an investor uh, to the different the different market environment we're in now. Um, you know, if you look at your portfolio, I, I forget who posted a, a, and I retweeted it um, earlier this week. You know, basically this went down list of you, you know, of like 20, 25 stocks, and they were all you know, again minus fifty, minus sixty five, minus seventy one, whatever the percentages were. I looked at it; it was all tech. It was all you know. The smallest numbers were big tech, but those were bad. And the you know the the, the worst numbers were all these garbage tech IPO SPAC type names um, that have been absolute portfolio poison. And the problem is, I think a lot of investors, again, got swept up in that, um, you know, people, especially younger investors, unfortunately, got swept up in that, um, bought, basically, their, their diversified portfolio was owning more than one FANG stock instead of, you know, putting all your money in, in just Amazon and what have you, or, you know, owning uh, two EV stocks instead of just Tesla. And again, that, that that was fine while it lasted, but that environment is is not going to work anymore. It's not working. It's not going to work in this kind of interest rate and economic environment, uh, for the in my opinion, for the rest of this year and into next year as well. So, um, you know, if those are the types of names you're you're you know you're stuck in, those names you got swept up in, you think it's going to you know secure your financial future. I'm here to tell you, you know, a lot of us thought the same thing in 1999, 2000. In the next couple of years, you know, if you stuck around in that you lost 80% of your money. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I think that's a it's a it's a great reminder because there's nothing really new under the sun in the way markets behave. It's just the 
It's the same heartbeats. It's just a different name, right? I think yeah. it's sort of, sort of a good way to frame it. Sure. I don't know, Michael. I guess I'll, I'll jump on that. Um, I agree with you that I think, you know, we, we've been trained in the last several years, for that matter, uh, that you don't want to get too short, too aggressive on the downside because the Fed's always going to swoop in and, and save the market, right? Um, that's that's always been the biggest factor that 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 scares you if you're aggressively playing the downside because Powell comes out with the right word or Powell's predecessor years ago comes out with the right, you know, soothing words or, or actions. And then all of a sudden the market takes off in your face. What's kind of interesting from from today's perspective and the market we're in now is that the Fed's off the table, right? Politically and economically, uh, unlike in, in past downturns, corrections, and, and even bear markets, um, you know, the Fed really can't do anything. It's sort of it's sort of in a box here, right? Uh, with you know the inflation number today, eight point three percent, I think it was. You know, we had eight point five the previous month, and so on. In those kinds of numbers, and especially given the the political pressure that's out there um, on top of the economic data, the Fed's trapped. So you know, I do see. The, the potential for playing a downside market with more of a, a intermediate term view versus, hey, I'm just going to trade it for a week. But if you're going to do that, in my opinion, you stick with a single leverage ETF or something like that versus a triple. Um, you know, you, you use tactical put option purchases and things like that um, if you're using anything shorter term. So again, it, it is a market that I think has more longer term downside pressure. But I still say if you're trading it, um, or if you're investing, if you're looking at you know multi-month time horizons and so on, you're better off with less leverage than than higher leverage um, because again, there, there's still there, there's still some risk that less bad news gives you a rally, uh, even if you know the Fed coming out and saying oh we're going to cut rates instead of hike them is not on the table in my opinion. There's also it's an important distinction I think, but also between leverage shorting versus going leverage long, right? Because I always go back to this idea that volatility is the enemy of leverage. Volatility tends to increase when you're below moving average, when you're in these kind of defensive postures. But it, to your point, it's okay to play tactically long levered as long as it's not too much. Now, I will tell you that that's also a double-edged sword, obviously. It's, you know, unfortunately, terrible because equities and treasuries are both selling off. But on top of that, the strategy is designed to be levered 1.3x when it's in equities. The idea there is that because you're going to be wrong naturally playing defense, you want to lever up a little bit playing risk on to play catch up from all the times you're out of the market in treasuries when markets go higher. Obviously, yeah. a year like this year doesn't work, but you know, it's, which is why it's gotten so so hit this year. And I'm hopeful things reverse. But but I think that's an important distinction. Leverage is not a, a dirty word as long as you can time it properly over multiple roll of the die, and as long as the risk of ruin, which is the multiplier amount you know, isn't, isn't there. Right. I think that's, that's an important distinction. I don't know if you want to kind of riff on that a little bit, Mike. No, I, I, you know, absolutely. I, I think you're on the right track there again. You know, this is an environment, um, where not really anything or not much of anything has been working. I mean, you know, again, you go back to the sort of at 60, 40 idea, your, your equities are, are offset by your treasuries, uh, in, in down markets and so on here, we have an environment that's, that's unlike anything we've seen in, in a number of decades, really, uh, where, you know, everything's selling off under this inflation pressure and sort of the policy implications of that. So, uh, but I do think, you know, your approach of, of, Keeping in mind historically strategies that have worked, uh, you don't want to kind of change that that game plan just because you're in a unique situation or a unique environment uh, that may not fit the pattern. So it, it's tough. It's tough sometimes to stick to that uh, approach, but you do want to, you know, you do want to keep 
keep in mind what historically over time will work for you and use those kinds of strategies. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 believe me, it's easier said than done when people are looking at that from a mark to market perspective and saying, oh, I thought you're supposed to be risk on risk off and you know, you're getting smoked harder than than most things. And it's one of those things where it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? You have to hang your hat on some historical relationship. You can't change based on the anomaly. And if anything, if we're closer to the end of the anomaly, the not anomalous environment uh, than not, well, then my hope is that that's actually a really interesting opportunity for people to, to look at it. But the problem is nobody ever wants to buy drawdowns. Right? They only want to buy yeah. new highs. Right? This idea yeah. of buy low, sell high is just a, a nonsense term for most people. Let me get uh, – and by the way, everybody that's here, I, I just, just please make sure you follow Mike Larson. I'm going to have this, again, on my Lead Lag Report YouTube channel like I do all the other spaces. But, yeah, I've, I've only met Mike once in person. We've had a lot of exchanges over the years. But you can tell he's very thoughtful and is very no-nonsense. And I think you know guys like him need – more of an audience to to uh, pay attention to what he's saying. So please make sure you follow him. Yeah, and they they you know they call that the constant leverage trap, right? When you are especially in a high volatility environment, because especially if you're using these daily reset types of products, you're levering at the exact wrong time before a decline. And that that's also why I like to frame things more in terms of conditions that favor an accident and volatility as opposed to direction. So yes, there is a link between a down market and higher volatility, but the, the the key property isn't the trend, it's that price generation movement. And Eric, I know you've done a lot of a lot of work on on that too. Do you have a, a question maybe for Mike or anything that, that's uh, kind of on your mind on the way markets are looking? You know, I think we're still gonna be in this this tighter money, generally rising rate um, environment for at least the rest of this year. Uh, and you layer in the, the risk of recession uh, that I think is very real heading into next year as well. Um, I don't really see a reversal of the trends that we've had in place for a few quor- a couple of quarters now. So, you know, a lot of people want to kind of think, OK, uh, maybe now tech is cheap again, or maybe now it's time to get into some of these these growthier type names and sectors that have been underperforming uh, and go from there. But I, I really I just hearken back to kind of that that dot com scenario that dot com uh, analog or whatever you want to call it and say you know every time you thought that it was over then you you lost another 10% in the following weeks and and it was just it was i mean like the, the term that i think comes to mind is relentless right it was relentless selling uh and I, that's that's kind of how i i picture what's happening here uh for the rest of this year and again into next year um i don't think this is a short term trend i think this is an unwinding process uh that will take time that means the market you know, market volatility is going to remain elevated. Uh, some of these assets that are in sectors that are already down a lot are probably going to be down even more. Um, and, and again, the defensive approach, playing defense, whatever you want to call it, I think is going to continue to be the right approach uh, throughout this year and, and probably heading into the next year as well. No, I think that that it's going to be a, a market environment that that again you mentioned you know the trend of volatility even if you use a simple index like the vix you know we were in that sort of hot mid to high teens range for a while we've popped up into this 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 20 to 30 range whatever you want to call it um i think that you know you're going to have volatility spikes along the way but i think that the the higher volatility environment uh is going to be with us for again for the rest of this year and into next year you know can i say exactly what you know the peak of volatility is going to be in this cycle um you know i i guess i wouldn't throw a number out there but i do think that in general a higher vol environment is going to be what we're coping with for the again for the rest of this year 
And, but I, and I also think there's a distinction between higher volatility and then the derivative, which is higher volatility of the volatility, right? Which which is also what makes it very difficult because if if you have volatility of volatility increasing, it would suggest that there's even more whipsaws potentially to come because every time it looks like you get a big spike and the market goes down, well, then uh, somebody tries to play that directionally and then they get their ass handed to them and then rinse and repeat, right? That's why I always go back to this point that bear markets make both bulls and bears look foolish. Yeah, no, again, you know, if you go back, if, in my mind, if I just keep going back to that dot-com kind of analog or what have you, uh, and again, you look at the the top 10 biggest NASDAQ rallies, uh, I forget exactly, I remember looking, looking this up a while back, I think like five or six of them were during that bear market stretch from 2000 to 2002. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that you have to keep in mind uh, from a tactical standpoint. Again, if you're going to be short, uh, just realize that, that, Bear markets have some of the biggest rallies uh, that you'll see, but they're, they tend to be short term. So it's all about timing. It's all about being, you know, very tactical. Uh, again, as you amp up that leverage, as you use different uh, vehicles uh, like triple leverage and inverse ETFs and so on, um, you just have to be aware what you're doing, how you're using it, and make sure that the investment tool you're using is appropriate for your investment outlook. Uh, I think that. You know, in this environment, uh, the Fed is absolutely going to continue with its hiking path for probably the rest of this year. I think that the Fed is going to front load those hikes. We're seeing it now. Um, you know, there's sort of some squishiness as to whether they would consider 75 or 50 at the next meeting or two. Um, but if you get the, the wrong and by wrong, I mean continually hot inflation numbers, they could potentially go 75. Um, what I think is ultimately going to happen, though, longer term, is that the Fed, you know, something is going to break, right? If you look at the, the history, uh, you know, already what we're seeing in markets, you think of some of the, you know, these tech stocks that, that are down 60, 70, 80%, people think, okay, as long as they don't own that stuff, it's not really going to matter from an economic perspective. So I'm not hurt by it. The economy is not hurt by it, whatever. But as you raise the cost of capital, the, raise the cost of debt, raise the cost of equity and so on, and you have these meltdowns, there's revaluations and business decisions that are changing by the day out there, particularly in a sector like tech that has been such a big jobs driver and growth driver. Um, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, I was it Uber CEO the other day who basically said, uh, you know, now we're going to start thinking about making money instead of just investing like crazy for growth purposes. You know, as those types of um, those types of decisions are made across the sector, it's going to have an economic uh, outlook, fallout, whatever you want to call it. You're going to see less hiring. You're going to see firing. You're going to see less demand for commercial real estate. You're going to see less you know, tech investment and so on. So all the kinds of spillover effects uh, that we saw, again, to use the dot-com analog and the bust there um, from falling equity markets and falling stock prices in that sector ultimately had an economic impact and led to, you know, helped you know, fuel the recession we had back then. I think you're going to see a similar impact this time around. And that's why I think, you know, I don't know what level of Fed funds uh, rate it's going to hit that you finally hit that economic wall and this market sell-off turns into a, you know, a market cascade, whatever. Um, but I think the Fed is going to reach a point where it just can't go any further because the economy can't handle it. One thing that, I, you know, you look at historically, you look at the last time inflation was at these these kinds of levels, you know, what was the funds rate? What were long-term interest rates? You were in high single to, to double-digit range. But at the same time, assets were a lot cheaper. Um, debt was a lot lower and so on. 
This time you have so much debt in the system. You have housing prices that are they're radically you know, overpriced. You have all these you know, asset markets that have been impacted by sort of zero forever interest rate, envi- the zero forever interest rate environment that you, know, you can't get to the same sort of interest rate levels we had in 1980, 81, 82, and so on without breaking things. So I think that the, the Fed cycle ultimately is going to get short-circuited at some point, you know, whether that's you know, you know, 200, 250, 300 bips on, on the funds rate. I'm not sure exactly, but I will tell you that, again, you can't have the kinds of interest rates we had back in 80, 81, 82 when inflation was this high, uh, given today's debt levels, given today's asset values and so on. Uh, it would be sort of an economic catastrophe. I mean, if you imagine... If you imagine, you know, it's funny, we talk about interest rates and, I, and at conferences like this, I speak to people and they say, oh, well, you know, interest rates aren't that bad. When I got my first mortgage, you know, I paid 14, 15%. And I, and I like to say, okay, well, how big was your first mortgage? Was it, you know, the size of today's average SUV loan, right? <laughs> I mean, a house was much cheaper. So now if you try and take $300,000, $400,000 house prices and mortgages in cheaper locations and, you know, a million if you live in, in California and places, uh, what would happen if you had 14, 15% 30-year mortgage rates? It'd be economic Armageddon. So that's why I think that the, you know, the Fed is going to try and front load this thing. They're going to have to respond to the inflation data. But ultimately, you know, you, people say, okay, well, we got 8.3% inflation, 8.5, whatever. You know, historically, a real rate of 2% in the positive makes sense. So why, you know, why isn't the funds rate at 10%? Uh, it, it just doesn't work with today's asset values and so on. So um, I think that's probably what's going to happen. You're going to see some kind of market accident, some kind of economic break that short circuits the, the Fed's hiking cycle at some point uh, at the tail end of this year or maybe into early next year. It kind of goes back to the name of space. The Fed can't win. I mean, I named that that purposely. I mean, that's really at the end of the day, kind of what we're what we're talking about. And by the way, as we're talking now, equities are flat or slightly down, and again, Treasuries are rallying. And I really do think it's like finally, I'm I'm finally getting a little bit of relief that maybe maybe Treasuries are going back to their historical behavior as a risk off asset, which is everything I need in my world. I've been waiting for this, and if that's the case, then it's going to be really interesting the next few weeks. Hey, thanks for the question. Appreciate everything uh, you had to say there. Um, I would say, again, I keep defaulting to the the sort of dot-com scenario, analog, whatever, you know, where I don't think this is going to be an 80% NASDAQ crash like we had back then. But when it comes to duration, uh, I do think that it's going to take a while for the the, the kind of, you know, the Fed to realize it's it's out over its skis. It's gone too far. Um, the economic, Especially in the recent cycle where they waited, you know, until the inflation news was terrible to even start hiking. Um, they're probably, as things start to deteriorate, they're probably going to keep going, um, you know, further than they, they likely should. Uh, so you're going to have that, you know, that Fed pressure in terms of interest rate policy for the rest of this year. You're also going to have, um, again, this unwind process um, that started with the the Kathy Wood type stocks falling apart, you know, middle of last year. It's only this year in the first quarter started to you know, spill over into quote unquote big tech. Um, you know, again, if you go to the dot com scenario, it took two and a half years for the the unwind of that bubble uh, to play out. And here, you kind of started the clock what mid summer of last year. If you want to start it that early, if you want to wait, measure it from when big tech started falling a little bit, that was earlier this year. So we're probably six to nine months into this thing, um, and it took two and a half years or so back then. So I would say we're going to have a tough market environment, um, however you want to define that, for the rest of this year and into next year at least. I think that um, you know 
from a from a real sort of intermediate term view, I don't think it's going to be you know back to a, a bull market, bullish environment uh, for a lot of assets until probably you know, at least a year from now. So again, how you want to interpret that and what you want to do about it uh, is really up to you know up to each investor. But my strategy has been to take that safe money approach. If you're going to be in stocks, be in big, boring, and beautiful kind of names, you know, be in Mondelez, don't be in Peloton, be in, you know, utilities instead of, uh, instead of tech and so on. There's lots of different ways that, that, that sort of overall view gets translated into actual investor action. Um, but if you want to look at duration, I don't think this thing is over next month or next quarter. I think this is going to be a tough environment uh, probably for at least the next year. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the way I'm conceptualizing it and looking at it from a big picture standpoint. You know, you look at something like the Qs, right? As we're talking, you're, you're around just under 300. Um, at the beginning of this this big run uh, in, in 2020, it was 225, give or, give or take. Um, that's kind of what I would look at for something like tech. Uh, you know, before I would really be aggressively bottom fishing. Look at S and P. I mean, again, we're we're just under that 4,000 range. Uh, mid 3000s low to mid 3000s is probably you know we're, we're probably in my opinion going to retrace a lot of of this this big uh easy money fueled run up that we had uh, as part of the 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 covid the post covid um you know money printing environment and fiscal stimulus environment um because again i think you know i've talked a lot about tech and some of the challenges that are going to happen there and some of the economic spillover we also have to remember that you're losing a lot of this this fiscal uh stimulus impulse um, whether for political reasons or just the fact that a lot of it was emergency basis or or COVID related, and the pandemic for in most people's minds is essentially over, or something we're all going to live with. So you're not going to see trillions of dollars in fiscal stimmy <laughs> being poured on the economy as well. Um, so again, I think the unwinding, you know, a, a good thing to keep in, in the back of an investor's mind is that we're probably going to unwind most of that run that we had um, as a result of aggressive fiscal stimulus and as a result of, of aggressive monetary policy. And by the way, I will say that a lot of people think that may think that sounds aggressive, but a lot of things have already gone round trip. I feel like, you know, we should stop thinking in terms of these terms like great rotation. I mean, it's really a great round trip. I keep putting out this this tweet of my father uh, doing a, a seminar to Merrill Lynch brokers in the mid 80s and basically talks about the Wyckoff uh, kind of round trip sort of pattern. And that's happening in a lot of areas. It's not inconceivable for larger cap equities. Sure. Great. Thank you for the question. Um, I think they're obviously the Fed is going to get increasing amounts of pushback as the year goes on. Um, I think that, you know, I'm sure they're probably already getting angry phone calls and so on, given what's been happening in the markets and the deterioration we've seen there. But ultimately, I think the, the political pressure on the Fed and also just the, the economic environment, they don't have any and they probably won't for a while have any real excuses, uh, public things they can point to and say, look, I can't keep, you know, we can't keep doing this because X, Y, Z is deteriorating in terms of a growth, uh, you know, growth data, or we can't, we won't keep doing this because ABC inflation indicator is rolling over. I don't think we're going to get to the point where, you know, they're going to be able to take a public stand and backtrack on this um, for at least several months. Especially when you, I mean, again, you just had the sort of um, navel gazing type Wall Street Journal piece where ex Fed officials and, and current Fed officials were saying, okay, maybe we kind of got this wrong. And, and, you know, this is why we didn't start hiking because we didn't want to disappoint the markets. And we had set out this path where first we're going to shrink the balance sheet, then we're going to raise rates, blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, that piece was just published this week. So I think that 
you're not going to get to that point where the Fed has to sort of admit, okay, we've gone too far or, or to backtrack uh, for several months, in my opinion. So that's part of my general take on the markets is that, again, the Fed won't be able to point, won't have political cover, won't have economic cover, uh, for lack of a better term, to reverse its policy, even if it's getting some pushback from the banking sector um, for for a while. So in that situation, uh, again, you don't kind of have that, you don't kind of have that Fed put the strike price on the Fed puts a lot lower, whatever metaphor or, or visualization you want to use. Um, I think that that's going to be the case for a while. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure, again, the Fed is probably hearing it from back channels and so on. Um, but I just don't think they have the ability to reverse uh, really without, you know, having a tremendous amount of egg on their face. And that's, uh, you know, that's a very real thing. You know, we all try and think of the Fed as being apolitical and so on. But come on, that's not that that's that's theoretical. That's not in the real world. And politically speaking, um, you know, you don't you can't have a stance where where uh, the, the the political side the administration and so on and Congress is pushing back on the Fed because the inflation numbers are so terrible. Main Street's feeling it and Main Street won't stop feeling that for a while. So in that environment, um, you know, the Fed has no cover uh, really to, to reverse its policy and to say, now we're going to try and go back to being easy without how, you know, Main Street getting their pitchforks and torches and saying, you're just trying to help Wall Street and so on. So in this environment, I just don't think that you're going to have that Fed shift, uh, even with some of that, that pressure you're talking about from the coming from the banking sector. By the way, before you answer that, Mike, I just want to say real quick, kudos to, to Herb because he, he identified the type of investor he is. And, and I, I, part of what me doing this is I want to make sure people also hear different viewpoints and are legitimately educating themselves. So, Herb, I want to give you credit for, for coming up, asking a very thoughtful question, because I think more of the community on FinTwit and in general in society needs to be open-minded and needs to always want to learn, by the way, including the pros like us. Uh, so, so, Mike, go ahead. And thank you. Um, and thanks for your question, Herb. Uh, I think that, you know, en- the energy run, energy is a historically a late cycle sector, uh, does tend to do well in this environment where you're, you have an inflationary environment, you have interest rates uh, increasing, but you're not yet at that tipping point where you're into, into a recessionary environment. Um, I've liked the sector for a while. I was unfortunately not as aggressive on it as I should have been. Um, you know, so you know, gotta gotta admit what what you get right and what you get wrong. Um, I am still uh, involved. And I do still recommend some of the bigger cap and, and higher dividend type names in the sector. I like a, a stock like CNQ. I like um, ConocoPhillips and so on. But I do kind of get concerned that again, if you get later in the year, you have an environment where the Fed uh, hikes really do start to bite. And then you kind of tip over from that pre-recession late cycle environment into an actual you know, recession. That's when you're probably going to lose energy and other things like consumer staples are going to be really in utilities are going to be really the only hiding places. Um, and again, when I say hiding places, I mean outperform, but may actually also lose you money uh, and just lose you less money than the broader averages. So I, I still am, a, am okay with en- the energy sector, but I do keep in the back of my mind that that's more of a uh, short to intermediate term versus, you know, let's hold it for the next couple of years uh, type environment. As far as, you know, are we going to reach the point where, you know, monetization of debt and, and all of that, that approach just doesn't work anymore? Um, I think you're seeing, because this cycle involved not just mo- very easy monetary policy, but also very easy and very stimulative fiscal policy, that's why you have you know that, that double-barreled approach is what helped to drive inflation and the kinds of numbers we're seeing now. Um, I think what you're gonna you're gonna see is 
they tried it. And by they, I mean, sort of, you know, the the MMT type crowd tried it and and, and thought this was going to work and not have any side effects. And obviously, we're all living with the side effects. Main Street's living with the side effects. Uh, It's, it's, you know, we have people with nice wage and salary gains, but oops, your inflation's rising faster. So you're actually losing money. Uh, despite that. So I think it's going to change the policy approach going forward. And we probably, I mean, who knows, God forbid we have another pandemic, then maybe you get a big bout of fiscal stimulus spending. But I think from an economic standpoint, that approach of super big government spending monetized by the, 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 you know, the Fed is probably not going to going to fly again, because we've seen what happens in that kind of environment uh, now. Uh, Herb, I'll let you have the last question. I will say also real quick that I think it's important to when they think about the way markets behave with COVID, uh, the reality is that one in thousand year events, which happen more frequently than once in a thousand years, can also happen back to back because it depends on where you end the thousand years and start the next thousand years. So we could see another very nasty black swan in the event that the markets does say you're at the end game of this monetization of debt, uh, Herb. It's just some random thoughts there. Mike? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, it's it's ironic, actually, as you're saying that I'm just looking at Apple and, and we're kind of taking out the we're, on an intraday basis. We're trying to take out the lows that we had uh, back in early March or mid-March. So, you know, people, a lot of big fund managers, institutional money look at Apple as, again, it's kind of like the way investors looked at Microsoft or, or Intel in the late 1990s and so on. It was a no-lose, no blue-chip um, place just to basically park cash. You're never going to get in trouble for, for buying too many shares of Apple, right? Um, but I think that as, the, as this market environment starts to unwind, as the carnage in peripheral tech, junk tech, whatever you want to call it, um, works its way up the food chain, it's going to get to big tech as well. You're going to have, you know, all these companies, all these tech companies that were funded by generous VC money and and so on. um, As that money dries up, there's going to be less tech spending and it's going to work its way up to the the big cap names like Apple. So whereas I think Apple has a lot of great fundamentals, it's a solid rating from our Weiss ratings. uh, And and it's not a company I I hate by any stretch of the imagination, the way I think some of these, these innovation arc names are going to go to zero. Um, it, it's a company that's going to get probably dragged down. And that's part of the reason why I think longer term, some of those downside targets for the S&P, the Qs and things like that. Um, that's why I'm, I'm keeping in mind that we may unwind this because you're going to lose that big tech bid as well, just like we've already lost that small and peripheral tech uh, buying. Uh, Mike, I appreciate it. Um, uh, don't bet on red, I guess. While you're in Vegas. <laughs> and everybody uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Again, I'm going to have this as a, uh, a YouTube edited podcast probably in a week or two at the Lead Lag Report on YouTube. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com.
Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.